0: So good to be here tonight, get your Bibles out and something to write with, pen and paper, and take some notes. We're going to turn to Psalm 145, 145 verse 4, and then we're going to go to a secondary scripture, 1 Samuel 17. And so as you heard from Pastor Brent, we are continuing with the series Messy Church based on the book title of the same name. And and so we are Really learning about what a church is really supposed to look like. The title does not mean that you can just be sloppy, that you can just live any old way you want and just make a mess around here uh, as you come in and then leave it. You, you, what it is is the opposite. It's messy. Church is a title that suggests that the church should be more like a family than any other entity, more than an organization, more than a uh, some some uh, corporation that produces consumer goods, God products, somehow our consumer culture has seeped into the church. And what I'm trying to do is help us to shift our paradigm and help us to understand that God made us into a family of believers. And when you embrace that paradigm, it changes the way you act towards one another and towards people in our culture and in our society. And so that's what we're talking about. And it's really about how church is a family. If you have a family, I do, I have five kids, you know that typically families are messy. If your house is never messy, you may have different problems. (laughs) But there is something about knowing your family, growing up with them, you know their faults, you know their failures, you know their weaknesses, you know everything about them, you can criticize them, but at the minute that somebody else starts criticizing them, you're like, hey, 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 that's my family. Something really bonding there. And, and this, tr- this truth is something we've got to kind of make our peace with. This truth. Nobody gets to choose their own family. You don't get to choose your own family. You were born into it. Adopted kids don't get to choose their own family. They were chosen by parents. I believe it's good to function under the premise that God places you in a family. I mean, okay, you know your family. <laughs> Would you have chosen them? Exactly. So I think we have to understand that there's a, a little bit of a messy dynamic when we embrace a group of people that God put us with. He places us in a family, and then we have to figure out how to live together. We, we grow in our character. We grow as we learn from one another, and we learn, we learn how to interact with people who are not like us. And that's really where I want to go today. Tonight, I want to name the title of the message. It is A Shepherd Boy and Botox Believers. (laughs) A Shepherd Boy and Botox Believers. And we're going to talk about how a church family should be multi-generational. Everybody say that word with me. Multi-generational. Not just one demographic group, but multiple generations worshiping together. Psalm 145. For Let's read it, one generation commends your works to another, the psalmist says, and they tell of your mighty acts. We've become pretty good in our American church model at commending God's works to our own demographic group, but not so good in talking about God's works in a cross-generational way. In fact, we've sort of adopted the consumer model of segmenting all of us into demographic groups and then learning about God that way the premise i would present to you is that it's that's an incomplete way to learn about God that there's something more powerful when you integrate with the multiple generations that exist in the family of God there's strength to be found there there's power there's grace there's training. And so I want our church to reflect this. Now, if you look at the psalmist that wrote this, it was David. David, the shepherd boy king who led Israel. And he had a unique insight on what it was like to be in a multi-generational context, but not the way you might think. He learns some lessons in 1 Samuel 17. Go over there and let's read this story together. Starting with verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. And they pitched camp at Ephes, Damim, between Socoh and Azekah." Verse 2 says, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. I can't read this passage without remembering in my Sunday school book, one little hill with the Israelites on it sloped down to a little valley. And then another hill, a little green hill with the Philistines on it. And they were fighting each other. They would meet in the valley every day. So look at what happened. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He was a big boy. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. This is a big guy. Look what it says, verse five. He says, uh, he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing uh, 5,000 shekels. On his legs wore... He wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a reaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels, about 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. He had to have a guy run out in front of him with his shield. This is a big guy. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why do you come out and line up for battle? "'Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul?' Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said this day, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Let's just pause right here in the story just to notice something what we see here is Goliath the enemy of the Israelites defining the terms of the war he's defining the terms of the fight as I was reading through this I I think that's a lot like you and me sometimes we let the enemy define the terms of the battle He's defining all the terms. There's two armies here, but he's coming out and he's saying, here's how it's going to work, boys. Sometimes we just give in. Our culture, which has so much craziness and darkness and and foolishness, sometimes we end up giving in to our culture, which is exactly what I was talking about earlier with the consumer model of church seeping into our churches. We've embraced a consumer mindset. We've given in. We let the culture define the terms i think it happens in our personal life i hear parents sometimes talking about teenagers being disrespectful i don't know if you've heard but teenagers can be disrespectful <laughs> and there's a kind of a, a, an approach to it and and the teen, their teenagers disrespectful and they say what are you going to do uh you're going to train them to not be disrespectful that's what you're going to do you're the parent You're going to train them and help them discover how not to be disrespectful while exerting their independence. You understand there's dependence when you're a child, then you express your independence as a teenager, and then you learn around 22, 23, you need to be interdependent with others. If you have good parents, it can happen even quicker. But there's something, I I always have to remind the parents when when I'm coaching them on dealing with teenagers, hey, 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 remember, you're the adult. You don't have to get down on their level, you don't have to let them define the terms. Whenever parents say stuff like, well, you know teenagers, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you're in a family. The way the family works is the parents raise the teenagers, help them figure it out, and walk with them through the process. You, do you see how sometimes even, I mean, the scriptures are clear how a family is supposed to work, but somehow in our culture, sometimes it begins to define our family more than the scriptures do. We can't, we can't give in to that. Don't give in to the enemy defining the terms. All right, we continue here with the story, verse 12. David arrives on the scene. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. And Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. And Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shama. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now, in the story, what's important to understand is he was going back and forth. Saul and David had already interacted. Saul was playing the harp for him because Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. And so there had already been interaction, but he was going back and forth, taking care of the sheep. Verse 16 says, for 40 days, you should underline that. That's going to be important here in a second, 40 days. The Philistines came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Sorry, the Philistine, Goliath, came forward and took his stand. Verse 17, now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. And so we see David. He's being sent by his dad. I like to see him as the pizza delivery boy. He was going to deliver bread and cheese and, and see how his brothers are faring in the war. Verse 20 says, early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as, an, as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. You've got to read this and see what's really happening here. All right? Because this has been happening for 40 days. They go out and they all assemble. And the Bible says they were running out shouting the war cry. Ah! Reminds me of Braveheart. You ever seen the movie? It's like, ah, blue paint all over their faces. Ah. They're running out to the battle lines and they're shouting the war cry and then they get there and then Goliath steps out and challenges them and defies the armies of the living God and then they turn around and run away. ha! Ah! Do you notice anything ridiculous about this? For 40 days, this has been happening. Number one, Goliath is defining the fight. But number two, there's no fighting. There's no battle. There's no engagement. There's no war. There's nothing happening here. I wonder if sometimes we're like this. A lot of talking, a lot of shouting, a lot of gathering for church but not a lot of engagement with the enemy in the battle. I want to challenge your thinking that you belong to a family that's engaged in a war. Jesse sent his youngest to check on the oldest. He was worried about him. Whether you like it or not, you are always in a battle. You're in a war. Now make no mistake, it is a spiritual war for the survival of your soul. John 10 says, the enemy comes to, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came to you to have life. So you're in a battle even though you may not feel like you are or your life is so distracted, things are so busy, everything's going on around you, you're involved in so many things that you don't even realize you're actually in a war. If you're in a war where your family is in danger, you think differently than if it's just you fighting your own spiritual battle. You think about your kids. And whether they're safe or not. You think about your brothers and your sisters and whether they're making it or not. You know, it's a well-known military fact that men and women don't fight for their country necessarily. They fight for the other guy in the foxhole. Something there, the bond that is there. What I'm concerned about in our churches is we don't have that bond. Because we like to come and just enjoy it. It's just kind of all about us. And if we like it, we stay. If we don't like it, we move on to another one. It's, it's just, it's kind of about us. Everything kind of revolves around us. That's not reality. One chapel is in Austin along with many, many other churches. And there is a battle for the soul of this city. And we gather here not because this defines us but because what we're doing out there defines us the light being pushed into the darkness and the dark places where people are trapped wounded broken destroyed by the enemy's schemes and plans that's what we're doing here see if you think that way it's different if you think about your family being in danger it's different And we have to engage. Now, sometimes you're on the front line and it's tough and you are battling and you are fighting. Other times you're on the back line and you're just recovering. But make no mistake, the war is always raging. These guys are just running up to the line and then running away in fear. Verse 25, now the Israelites had been saying Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes. Not Texas. Taxes. So verse 26 says, David asked the men standing near him, wait, wait, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes, notice the language, removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Okay, David's a teenager. He's a teenager, he has no armor. He's got a nice little sling hanging here off his belt. He's bringing bread and cheese to his older brothers who are decked out in army stuff, garb. Do you see the problem developing here? You see what's about to happen? You can see it coming. He asks what's gonna happen. You you can see almost the youthful idealism. You know, there's a reason they call it youthful enthusiasm. We don't usually say, Man, he's got aged enthusiasm. (laughs) There's something about being a young man who's full of spit and vigor and ready to conquer the world. Can I suggest to you that our churches need that young man? We also need the older man. We also need the wisdom and experience and the soberness of a man who's traveled. But notice what happens here. Kind of the opposite takes place. They repeated to him what had, they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. The older brother. Older brother. Is burning with anger. Why is he burning with anger? What's the big deal? Could it be that just they're not that far away from an experience that really made Eliab upset? Could it be that just a few chapters earlier he's still stinging from Samuel coming to their little village, ready to anoint a king, and he had to, he and his seven or his six brothers had to stand there, waiting while they went and found the shepherd boy. What was Eliab's problem? He was resentful. He, was, he, res, he resented David. He resented his idealism. He resented his youthfulness. He resented his enthusiasm. Notice what happens here. He yells at him. It's such a brotherly dynamic. He says, I know you're conceited. You're just here because you want adventure. And David's like, yeah. That's what, that's what young people do. Listen, it's not surprising that college students sometimes think they're the first ones to stumble on an idea. <laughs> Only later to find out people for centuries have been wrestling with the same issues. See, I, I think the, the, the goal of our church family is to make sure we have the people who have a sobered experience but who have not yielded to resentment, who have not yielded to cynicism, being strong in wisdom, character, but then welcoming the young, innovative, idealistic college student to the table of worship. There's something really powerful about that. Let's keep reading. Notice what he says. Verse 29, David says, Now what have I done? (laughs) Can't I even speak? I've said that hundreds of times to my brothers. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else. It's so so classic. He says, "Turn away from someone else and brought up the same matter. (laughs) And the men answered him as before. And what David said was overheard and then reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him David said to Saul let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine your servant will go and fight him he's a teenager with a sling he's standing before the king don't worry about a king I'll take care of this for you that's crazy it's crazy unless you know the end of the story Verse 35 says, Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, notice the the phrasing. The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David was interested in defending the reputation of God. He wasn't just interested in the, wom- the woman and the wealth, there was something else that gave strength to what he was doing. Verse 38. Oh, finish, finish verse 37. Saul said to David, Go and the Lord bless you, the Lord be with you. Which I think is kind of like saying, I think your odds are zero, but I'd love to see you try. God bless. Okay, if you're going to go do this, go ahead. And then notice what he does. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. And then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. And of course, you know the rest of the story. But there are two significant people in this story. Eliab, who resented his younger brother, resented his desire to be engaged. You can imagine how that would feel if you were fully decked out in your armor and you had been scared to death of the big man who keeps walking up, the giant Who keeps intimidating you and some little pick squeak brother of yours comes up and says i'll take care of this but then saul who is also much older than him says okay okay here you go go ahead and do this but let me give you my stuff let me give you my armor and he expects david to do it just like he did it i think this happens in our churches all the time you notice it when a church Starts to get older. They're going on for 25 or 30 years, and they're stuck. They're stuck in a culture. They've never, they haven't amassed a multi-generational culture. So now all of a sudden, it's just a bunch of old people sitting around, and they're thinking, oh, what's going to happen to our church? And so what do they do? They start a really cool service with guitars and drums. That'll do it. And then they segment the family once again forcing them to learn all their own lessons over and over again. They split up the family, thinking that'll teach them about God. But what it teaches them is about their own selfishness. Because the reasons they don't want a guitar in their service is they're selfish about the way they want to worship. See, how crazy is it? Think about this for a second. How crazy is it for church families to expect the youngest among us to put up with everybody else's stuff? the most immature among us. It is the most mature among us who have the wisdom and the strength to lean towards the next generation and say, hey, I want you to come here with me. When everybody's sitting around the table in my family and all my kids are there, it's a lot of work. Who's it a lot of work for? Me. And my wife. (laughs) It's not a lot of work for the kids. See, I I think a church has to settle this. It has to be okay to consider... That we're going to have a legacy. We're only two years into this thing. But the goal is that we'll have 20 years into it and we will have grown, we'll have been fruitful, we'll multiply. There will be children among us. We will include them at the table. They will learn from our unselfishness. They will learn from our modeling and our example, how to serve one another, how to serve and love somebody who's not like you. And then they will repeat it. They'll pattern their lives after us. And our legacy will be that it continued over and over and over again. Our legacy will be that we were a light in this community that could not be extinguished. That's what a multi-generational church is supposed to do. If you look over at 1 Peter... go over there all the way to the back of the new testament and we'll read a few scriptures about this see i want i want one chapel to be a place where each generation is valued and encouraged to fill the role that god has given them aged and wise believers should be honored and respected young people should be trained and encouraged <laughs> it is a process It has tension. It is um, it's uh, it's messy. There's nothing I love more than watching a young family, a young person get married, and then you know he's super cool. He's got his skinny jeans. (laughs) His hair is just perfect. And then somehow, or it's not. It's really messy. But it took like thirty minutes to get it that way, and. And then suddenly, he's married, and he's starting to have children. I like to call it the minivan syndrome. Have you ever heard him say it? I'll never drive a minivan. All it takes is two kids, and boom, you're at the car lot. So how does this button work? Yeah, this is great. It happens a little bit at a time, but it's such a good maturing process. It's healthy. Look at what Peter said when he was writing this letter. He says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, to the one and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. He's talking to the people that are leading the church. The older people always lead the church, and they need to make space and room for the idealism and the innovation of the next generation. But he's saying, here's how you do it. Here's how I want you to treat the people that are under your care. I want you to act like your shepherds. I want you to be gentle with them. I want you to be an example to them and show them how to live. Show them how to live. Verse 5, he coaches young men. He says, young men in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. In the same way, what does that mean? In the same way that the older men are shepherds and caring for you and being an, an example, not, not doing it kind of begrudgingly. Have you ever heard a parent kind of get irritated at their kids? Oh, my kids, oh, so hard. No, not because you have to, but because you are willing. These are, my, these are gifts to me. My children are gifts to me from God that present the best opportunity for me to disciple someone you do realize this don't you it's like families are where discipleship takes place the best he says young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble notice how humility is chosen God can't give you humility He doesn't say, here, have some humility, come up to the front, get slapped on the forehead, get some humility. No, that doesn't happen that way. You have to choose it. You have to choose humility. It must be chosen and as you choose it, it it begins to spread to those who you love And, and, and actually God's grace comes upon you to do what he's called you to do. Humble yourselves, verse six says, therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. It's almost like he's saying to the young men, hey, be submissive, be careful, and look, wait your turn. It's coming. It's coming. How do young men and women learn how to be humble? They learn it from watching older men and women be humble. There's no way around it. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying to be multi-generational, that we've got to be hip and cool at 55 years of age? No, when, we, when you have a guy who's 55 and he dresses like a 25-year-old, we call that a midlife crisis. <laughs> it's not pretty. Don't do it. Most of the next generation does not want you to dress like them. They want you to be who you are. It's classic examples when your dad gets old enough that he's not cool at all. <laughs> He's wearing really embarrassing clothes. You're like, Dad, oh. They wear black socks with their tennis shoes <laughs> up to their calves, you know. <laughs> they have suspenders on or something. <laughs> so there's something really good about that. There's something actually really comforting to a, a, a family, I think, when the dad, and listen to this, when a dad is comfortable enough with himself, he's really not worried about what other people think. See, that is when you actually become a man. You're not doing things for other people's opinions. You're you're just you. Dads and moms, the next generation wants you to be who you are. If you turn over to 1 Timothy 5, we'll read one more scripture and then we'll close. One more scripture and then we'll close. We live in a culture where people are ashamed to age and so they everything they can to stop the aging process including inject themselves with foreign substances Botox is a synthetically engineered substance that reduces wrinkles that were earned earned after many years of experience, we live in a youthful culture. See, here's my, here's my problem. I don't want to deny the next generation a place at the table. I want to make sure they're there because, frankly, we need them. David was the only one who could figure out how to kill the giant. Who knew that there was one spot on this armor-covered body of this giant right on his forehead, and David knew right where it was and had the skill and the innovation to conquer it. One generation's giant is the next generation's victory. We we have to have them at the table, but neither do I want us to try to be them. I don't don't want all of us injecting ourselves with Botox and, and being ashamed of how God has worked in our generation and the stories that we've experienced that we need to pass on, commending God's works to the next generation. Botox represents a desire to stay young at all costs, obsessed with appearance instead of satisfied with wisdom. Let's not not be that. Let's be okay with who we are and who God has made us to be. Let's be the kind of church that will grow old gracefully and will have a bunch of young people all around all the time. You do understand that it gives us purpose as we get older. There's nothing so sad as to see an old couple where one couple, one part of the couple, the man or the woman dies and then the other loses their will to live. You know what that is? They've run out of purpose. That person was part of the purpose that kept them going. When we just get old and we start enjoying ourselves and we go to the golf course, That is not what God has planned for you in the kingdom. We're not going to retire. We're going to, I mean, we're not going to work as hard as we used to, make no mistake. But but we are not going to disappear. We need to be here to invest in the next generation. To remind them of who they are, of what they're a part of, of what God's already done. That's why we say the creed every week. That's why we do things like sing these hymns. That's what, there is a, an attachment, a connection to our history and heritage that is so healthy for us as a church. But we, have, we also have one arm in the other direction, going towards what is next, what Jesus wants to do, what the Holy Spirit is doing now in our society. <laughs> Notice what it does. It stretches you out, puts you on a cross. It forces you to lay your life down for another generation. That's what I'm talking about here. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. He says, do not rebuke an older man harshly. If you're in a position where you have to rebuke, I've had had the experience all my ministry life because I've looked so young and I started when I was 25 and I was pastoring people who were twice as old as me. It was very awkward, it was very difficult. Young men should never harshly rebuke an older man, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers. Treat younger men as your brothers. These young men are being influenced by all kinds of stuff. It is your role to protect them, to share with them, to bring them up, to, to to say to the bully on the block that's ruining that younger brother's life, hey, you, you can't do that to my little brother. That's how we're supposed to function. Verse 2 says, Older women as treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Look, when you see the other people in this congregation as part of your family, when you young men see these young ladies as your sister, (laughs) that changes things for you. (laughs) Jesus wants absolute purity from you, and you need to see them as daughters of God. See, when you think multi-generationally, when you're willing to surrender to this process, this idea that, yes, it is messy. Yes, there's tension. Yes, we have to deal with youthful idealism and, and, and an uh, aging population that's, that's sobered. But that's God's design. When we, when we live as a family together, we perpetuate the longevity of our family. That's what I want to do. That's what I want you to do with me. I want to become the people that God wants us to be. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Let's just take a moment and let God speak to you. What is he saying to you? Just close your eyes and think about how he might be encouraging you to love somebody who's not like you. Is he encouraging you to look out for your younger brother or sister? Is he challenging you to forgive your father? Is he dealing with you in a personal way tonight? Maybe you're still stuck in the consumer model of church and you you haven't really embraced a family attitude. But tonight you need to, you need to say yes to God's family. You need to say yes to your role, no matter what your age. Don't be like Eliab who resented the next generation and his enthusiasm. Don't be like Saul who tried to get him to do exactly as he had done it. Be willing to invite the next generation to the table to play your role as a father, an older brother, an older sister, a mother. Young men and women, you might be here and you're thinking to yourself, "I, I know, I know what I should do, and I don't want somebody telling me what to do. Well, the scripture says you should be submissive and learn from those who've gone before you. Maybe you need to do that in a greater way. Let God lead you as I pray over you. Father, help us to become the family you want us to be. Help us to surrender and yield to our purpose in this family help us to embrace what you've given us where we are in our stage of life help us to not be ashamed of it or embarrassed by it we're never too young to be involved and we're never too old so teach us how to do that teach us as a church instruct us as a family so that we can see what you want us to accomplish in this city